Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Today, I'm joined by Liz Lenovey and Megan Crow, and I am Amy Gunn. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hi. Today, we're going to be talking about appeals, and that's a very broad topic, so we expect that this will be in two episodes. Before we start talking about appeals in the sense of after a case is over, when you're reaching out to the appellate court, there is a concept called writs. And many lawyers in the civil and criminal arenas are familiar with writs. In Missouri, our Court of Appeals is authorized by the Constitution to issue extraordinary original remedial writs. So these are things that the appellate court can make a trial court do or not do during the pendency of a case. And in Missouri, we have five that are generally discussed. The first is mandamus, and that's covered by Rule 94. That is the Court of Appeals' ability to make a trial court do something, affirmatively do something. The next is the writ of prohibition, and that's covered by Rule 97. That is the appellate court's authority to stop a trial court from doing something. And this is an area that probably is the most familiar in our setting, in the civil litigation setting, where you have a trial court perhaps issue a discovery order compelling a party to produce records, and that party just does not want to produce the records. They would, quote, take a writ and ask the appellate court to review the case and stop or order the trial court from compelling those documents. And we'll come back to that. A third area is the writ of habeas corpus, controlled by Rule 91. And this is one that we're all familiar with if we think about our con law classes and our government civics classes, where it's you bring an arrested person to court. And Liz, what does it actually mean? I think the Latin translated into English means produce the body. Right. So this is physically bringing someone to court to have their day, so to speak. The next is Quo Warranto, Rule 98. I know y'all are fascinated so far, but I don't feel right not covering all of them. And this is where you determine whether a person with power or an office holder has the right to continue to hold that office. So it's a test of the legal right of someone to hold office. And I don't know, in our day and age, I can't believe we haven't seen more Quo Warranto writs being requested, but maybe they will. We'll see. And then finally, the writ of cert. And again, this is one of those things that I always think about the United States Supreme Court. This is where you're seeking a judicial review of a lower court decision. And you almost always see the Supreme Court deciding to take cert of something. It's certainly not by right. And this is the same in the Missouri Supreme Court. The highest court has to decide whether to accept an appeal. So going back to the writ of prohibition, which I mentioned was probably the one that we're most familiar with here, I can tell you that I can't remember the last time I took a writ, but a colleague of mine told a story over the weekend that I thought it was hilarious. She was in trial. She's a plaintiff's lawyer, and she was in trial against a bigger corporation who had hired a, you know, a pretty substantial law firm to defend it. And she'd won 
and this may have been pretrial, so forgive me, but she had won a motion and the defendant needed to produce something. And she's out in the hallway and the lawyer from big law is like screaming down the hallway to a couple of associates, call the writ department. So his law firm had a whole writ department and she... <laughs> My friend just walked off laughing. She thought it was hilarious because they are extraordinary remedies. And very rarely does the Court of Appeals actually accept the writ and issue the writ, particularly a prohibition, because as should be, trial courts are generally given broad discretion, particularly on evidentiary issues. So, Liz, with respect to the writ of prohibition, do you have any examples of stories about those? Yeah. The story that comes to mind is actually a case that was decided a couple years ago, and I can't recall if it was an appellate decision in Missouri or if it was the Supreme Court. I'm leaning towards this was an appellate decision. But in this particular scenario, the plaintiff in a personal injury case had claimed some type of injury. I think that affected his ability to swallow or smell or taste some weird injury that affected his senses. It's very different from what we're used to where, you know, you can have someone go to an orthopedic surgeon and they can see what type of hip injury or knee injury or something. I mean, smell, taste, all of that is a pretty unique injury. And the defense attorney wanted to send the plaintiff to an IME where the IME doctor was going to have the plaintiff ingest some sort of substance. It's been a couple months since I read this opinion, but from what I can recall, the trial judge had not gotten a lot of information from the defense IME doctor. Basically, what exactly was the substance? If it could harm the plaintiff? Really, what was the purpose of this? Was this good science? I mean, this kind of goes back to what we've talked about in a prior episode on Daubert. Is this good science or is this junk science? And there wasn't a whole lot in the record that really explained how this was going to be useful and also whether it was going to harm the plaintiff. And the plaintiff's attorney, rightfully so, took a writ, went up to a reviewing court, and the reviewing court granted the writ of prohibition, basically telling the lower court, you can't force someone to do this unless you have done all of the proper steps to make sure that this is something that's safe and necessary. And something that they pointed out in this particular case, too, is that even though you are a plaintiff, this is what really stuck out to me from this opinion was even if you are a plaintiff in a lawsuit, you have decided to bring a lawsuit, you have put yourself in this position, that doesn't mean that you lose your constitutional rights to control and privacy over your body. And that's something that also goes with medical records. And this is a fight that we have often with opposing counsel. And there's really strong opinions because other plaintiff's attorneys have taken writs on what exactly can a defense attorney get in discovery, especially with medical records. I mean, we have situations where our client has a spine injury, has a hurt back, and for some reason they want their oncology records or they want their labor and delivery records from 20 years ago. None of that is relevant to the very specific injury we're talking about. And the Missouri courts, are, I think, are very clear that it has to be pertinent both in time and scope. And the time and scope is laid out in the pleading and the evidence must conform to what we have pled in our petition, which is why you have to be really careful what exactly you're pleading as far as injuries go. And like most things that we do in the civil world, in the criminal world for that matter, there are rules that apply. And for extraordinary writs, rules 48.22 through 48.24, 
govern the procedure of filing a writ. And then I mentioned some of these other writs have particular rules that attach to it as well. But one of the things that is key to an appellate practice is knowing the rules and following the rules. And I'm not just glancing at them and getting close to following those rules, but following them to a T. And Megan, have we had a recent Missouri Supreme Court opinion that maybe really brings that home? Yes. So just a couple weeks ago, on March 15th, 2022, the Missouri Supreme Court issued a pretty brutal opinion admonishing an attorney for not fully complying with the rules for an appeal. So if you are interested, the case is Lexo v. Boeing. And Basically, it was a workers' compensation type case where the claimant had a carpal tunnel syndrome and he settled with the employer and then had sought another claim against the second injury fund. And basically, the second injury fund filed an application for review with the Labor and Industrial Relations Commission, and they issued this ruling. And the appeal stemmed from this ruling from the commission. So the case made its way up to the Missouri Supreme Court, which ultimately held that because the claimant's brief failed to comply with the mandatory and straightforward rules governing the contents of an appellant's brief, particularly those pertaining to points relied on, this court dismisses the appeal. So basically, the opinion went through Rule 84.04 in Missouri is the rule that sets forth the requirements for an appellant's brief in Missouri. And these rules are mandatory for all appellants to follow. And the court wrote in its opinion that it prefers to get to the merits of a case, but if a brief is so deficient that it fails to put the other parties in the court on notice of what is being appealed, then it has no choice but to deny that appeal and dismiss that claim. And basically, the court explained that it would balance the implications of ignoring the deficiencies. In this case, it ultimately held that it would be unfair to rule on the merits of this case. So in this particular case, the issue with the appellant's brief was the points relied on. And there's a specific sub portion of Rule 84.04 that discusses what the points relied on should entail. There's basically three parts. You have to state what the ruling is that you're challenging, state the legal reasons for that error, and then what actual support you're citing for that. And the rules are super detailed in Missouri, and it explains in detail, you know, each appeal has to have one point relied on for each issue that you're appealing. So in this case, basically, the court held that all of the points relied on in this brief were deficient. The first one was deficient because it was referencing the Court of Appeals decision instead of the original decision of the commission. And the second one is that the point relied on too many points and it was multifaceted and you can only have one issue per point. And it went through a plethora of deficiencies in these points relied on. And the rest of their brief was also deficient. They said there was no proper statement of facts. There was no reference to the record on appeal, which you have to file, which there's another set of rules that explain how to get the record on appeal and how to cite to it. And they didn't list a table of cases that they were required to. And then the real kicker. <laughs> As if it's <laughs> 
The real I'm kicker. I'm not to be as quite as upset and worried about it as I was when I just heard the headline. No, the real kicker is that the rules allow you to file a substitute brief if the first one is deficient. And the attorney in this case did file a substitute brief, but he did that wrong too. Or I'm saying he could have been a woman. I'm typically opposed to using a default he pronoun, but for this situation, <laughs> I'll let it slide. So the attorney filed a subsequent brief and it was still wrong. And so the court said in its conclusion that it is not an advocate for the claimant to overcome these problems and dismiss the appeal. Part of the reason that I think we have all of these rules is because in order for our courts to be efficient in reviewing what another court has done, especially if you're asking the court to reverse a judge, that's a really big deal to say that another judge has made an error, especially if it's a situation where it's an abuse of discretion. But part of the reason that we have these strict rules and that you have to follow them is to make sure that the courts work efficiently and that they know exactly where you are pointing to in the legal file or what case law you were referencing, what exactly you even want. That's why the points relied on are important, because the court needs to know what are you even asking for? So I've never done a full appeal, but I have started the process recently and I went through and took a long time researching the rules of how it's done. And I put together a full memo of all the applicable rules because I knew that procedurally there are so many different things that you have to hit to do it correctly. And they're so important. And I found, at least in Missouri, the Missouri Practice Series has a very helpful guide, a starting place. If you are going to do this, it tells you the you can't obviously stop there, but it tells you the rules to go to and where to complete your research in a pretty logical and straightforward way. And, you know, there are a lot of rules and it can seem overwhelming, but if you take the time and break it down, it can be pretty easy to hit every step that you need to. So I want to talk more about the briefs. I want to back up just a bit to all the things that have to happen before you even get to write your brief. And it starts, I believe, with preserving error. So we write motions in limine all the time, right? And we want to get ahead of issues that we don't want the jury to hear. We want evidence sometimes when it's stricken. The judge rules on motions in limine. Are the rulings on the motions in limine final? No, they are interlocutory. And what does it mean to be interlocutory? pending the final disposition of the case. And the effect of having only interlocutory rulings on motions in limine is that they are not final rulings and they are not preserved for appeal. So if you have a big issue in a motion in limine, let's say it's been denied. You don't want expert B to talk about the pre-existing condition of your client. And you lose that issue on motion in limine. Expert B is on the stand in direct examination. The question is posed about your client's pre-existing injuries. What do you do? Your Honor, may we approach? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because what if you don't object? If you don't object, it's considered not preserved for appeal. And what happens if it's not preserved for appeal? You can't go crying to the appellate court saying that the trial court screwed up. Because it's not preserved. And the only person responsible for preserving error is you or your team. And that's a big deal. And I learned that in the first case I tried, I lost on some kind of motion and 
I was by myself. Not that I was upset about that, but two years out and completely alone trying this lawsuit. But I had a partner who kind of popped in just to, it wasn't even his case, just kind of popped in to see what was going on because I guess he was there anyway. And it was at a moment where an issue had come up and we, I guess we had taken some kind of break and he came up to me. He's like, you have to object. You have to object. You have to preserve it for appeal, whatever the issue was. Luckily it turned out okay. And we won and settled and all that. But I could have made a huge mistake. I objected to one of the seven questions that were objectable. No, it has to be every question, every issue. And Liz, you're right. You don't want to stand up and be like, I object. He can't talk about. In that situation, if it's really something you don't want the jury to hear, then you have to go sidebar. And you can preserve error by saying, Judge, I anticipate the next six questions are going to relate to this issue. May I have a running objection for the record to preserve it for appeal? And if the judge says yes, and you're probably okay. Although you have to balance objecting and alerting the jury to something you don't want the jury to hear and making a big deal out of it with preserving it for appeal. And, and if I could just jump in there, because I realized when I answered, I said, because this is what I would do. If it's a situation where we're talking about pre-existing injuries, I would say, Your Honor, may we approach. Let's say the court agrees with you now, right? Let's say the judge says, you know, within this context, and I've had time to think about it, I'm going to grant your objection. Counsel, you need to move on to your next set of questions. The last thing you want to do is objection, Your Honor. You can't bring in all these pre-existing injuries. You can't talk about the pre-existing back injury. Well, now the jury's heard it. Right. So that's why you want to go up there. But in situations where it's something like hearsay, speculation, you're just throwing out that type of objection, that's something that you can probably just stand up, state your objection, and then let the court rule and move on. Now, if there is testimony that you want in that the court has ruled is inadmissible for whatever reason, then you can't just say, well, here's what this person would have said. That's not good enough. Your words are not evidence. So in that situation, you have to make an offer of proof. And Liz, what's an offer of proof? So an offer of proof is a situation where you put on evidence outside of the presence of the jury. So the example I'm thinking of right now is let's say my expert wants to explore a certain part of their testimony that the judge has ruled cannot come in. So outside of the presence of the jury, my expert will take the stand, do the oath, testify under oath, just as if the jury was still there, and I will run through my questions. That way, on the record, we have all of the evidence that the jury would have gotten to hear. So if my expert goes through all of his or her opinions, the court decides I'm still not going to allow it in front of the jury. Now I can go up to the Court of Appeals and say, this is why it was an error and this is why it would have made a difference Correct. in this case. It's imperative that if you have really important evidence that the court isn't letting you get in front of the jury, you still have to get that in the official transcript. That way, the Court of Appeals has an opportunity to review it. And actually, in a situation a couple of years ago, I was involved in an appeal where an offer of proof had not been made. And when we went up to the appellate court and this issue came up in front of them, the panel of judges basically said both on the bench and in their opinion later in writing without the offer of proof, without knowing exactly what the evidence would have been and how it would have changed the outcome of the trial, we can't make a ruling on this so we cannot grant the reversal of the trial court in this situation. So another way to make an offer of proof is if there's a section of a deposition, 
if you don't have the witness live or you have a section of a deposition, I've done this before, where I just mark that deposition or those pages of the deposition as an exhibit and say, Your Honor, I am offering exhibit 232 as my offer of proof relating to fill in the blank. And that becomes part of the record. Then the court doesn't have to have the live Q&A, but can have the gist of it from the testimony if you have that too. So, you know, it could be interrogatory answers. It could be documents. You're offering the proof, literally, that the jury can't see, but the court of appeals has to have it to look at. You know, sometimes you lose a motion. You kind of walk away with the tail between your legs. You have to pivot and you have to say, okay, well, here's what I wanted the court of appeals to read. And just, I'm going to make an offer of proof. And judges, I don't think they love it because it's like it has to be outside the jury. You got to let the jury out, but you must, must, must do it. One more thing on pre-actually appeal is jury instructions. And we've talked about jury instructions before. We've talked about how important it is to have an on-the-record jury instruction conference. If you have a jury instruction that you're tendering that the judge denies you have to include what you wanted in that jury instruction in the record, and the judge has to deny it. But if you tender in a jury instruction, the judge says, I don't like it, I'm not going to offer it, and you pull it back and you put it back on your table or put it in your briefcase and you never make it part of the record, it's not preserved. And you can talk on the record and you can have the discussion on the record, but you need to have evidence of what exactly you wanted to say or you wanted the, the jury to be instructed on before that's entirely preserved for appeal. My question is, because I'm thinking back to an appeal I had a couple years ago where two of the defendant's points on appeal were that the trial court had committed error in jury instructions, two specific jury instructions, so two separate points of error. When you say that you have to submit it, do I have to submit the physical piece of paper or is it enough to just read it onto the record of I wanted MAI 3701 and the court will not let me submit it. You're probably okay as long as it is part of the record in some form. I think it's cleaner. Tender the actual instruction that you want, have it denied, but still remain part of an exhibit that is my tendered instructions. Or that way the court has it as a document versus just whatever's on the record. And I think what really made me say that is so many times we have off the record jury instruction conferences, lengthy. And then once you work through everything and the judge has said what I'm going to offer and what I'm not going to offer, then you go on the record and it's very brief. Instruction number one is blah, 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 two, three, four, five, and they just go through it. And if you fail to remember that lengthy discussion about why you wanted instruction 14 to look like it did and why the judge wasn't offering it, if you fail to get that on the record, and you fail to have it submitted as a separate exhibit or somehow made part of the record, then you're in trouble. And I think that I just remember many times having lengthy jury instruction and like forgetting that we weren't on the record. Luckily, I've never had it adversely affect, you know, an appeal or an outcome. But man, it would I'd feel badly if it did. So after you have tried your case, put everything on the record, let's say, God forbid, we lose and we need to appeal the case. The first thing I think we need to point out is if you don't include a point on appeal in your motion for new trial, 
it's not preserved for the appeal. You have to file a motion for new trial, and then it has to be denied. Then after the time period goes by for post-trial motions, then the judgment is final, and then you can appeal. And you have 10 days from the final judgment. And there are lots of fun rules on the definition of a final judgment. 7401 defines judgment. 7501 is judgments controlled by the trial court. 7807 is after trial motions. So again, lots of rules. You mentioned what a final judgment is. That actually can be a more complicated point than you might think. I recently had a case where there was a motion to dismiss that was granted, which you would think initially that that disposes of the case and that's a final judgment. But in this particular case, the ruling wasn't clear because there was maybe some parties who still had claims pending against them. It wasn't totally certain on what claims against what parties were dismissed. And the court didn't use this magic phrase that's in the case law and I think in the actual rules for when a judgment against a party is final. And so we actually did a motion to clarify asking if the court meant to you know, say these magic words if it meant to dismiss these certain parties. And so you always want to double check the rules. Even if you think something is a final judgment, it may not be. Well, 7401B, judgment upon multiple claims or involving multiple parties. So this has been contemplated by the rules committee. And you're right, it can be very complicated. And the reason why it's important is because of these timeframes. If you have a judgment and it's a final judgment under the rules and more than 10 days goes by, you blow it on filing your appeal. Now, the easy thing about Missouri is a notice of appeal is literally like a one page notice of appeal. You don't think they have a form. Yeah, it's very simple. It's not like you have to have everything fully briefed within 10 days. You just have to put people on notice that you plan to appeal. Now, one thing that I remember getting a verdict And the jury form, the verdict form, is where they write in who wins, who loses, how much, and sign all their names. That's not the judgment. The judgment is entered upon the jury verdict. And some judges will automatically or within a day or two enter judgment on that verdict, and some won't. Some, they want you to draft it, you know, yourself or whatever, And so you just have to be very aware of what your judge intends to do, because if there's never a judgment entered, that affects the timeframes for when you file post-trial motions and it just gets messy. And one thing I think we've learned today is that messy is bad. Rules are good. So you need to make sure you're following everything. So I have a story about this whole judgment thing. We tried a case a number of years ago in Lincoln County, Missouri. It's a MedMal case. We lose the case. We file a motion for a new trial as per the rules. And there was a hearing date to argue the motion. But the judge, because I remember being on my way to Lincoln County to argue the motion, and the judge's clerk called and canceled it and then basically never reset it. And so the rules are, your judgment isn't final until the post-trial motions are ruled upon. So we just kind of wait and check case net. Is she going to reschedule the hearing? What's going to happen? And this is by now it's mid-December. We tried it, I believe, in September. And now it's mid-December. 
It was the Friday of our holiday party. But the opposing counsel called, or maybe his associate, and said, hey, the judge entered the order denying the motion for new trial. And it never got uploaded to CaseNet, which is the electronic docketing system and is how we get notice of orders and things being filed by opposing counsel. Because as soon as something gets filed, we get an email if you're attorney of record. And it was the Friday afternoon and it was the judge signed the order seven, eight days ahead. In my humble opinion, I can't say exactly why it didn't get filed, but it didn't get filed. And for some reason, I think, I don't know why, how how this associate figured it out, but I literally had that afternoon to get my notice of appeal on file or it would have been late because by Monday it would have been late based on the timing. And I have never believed that that wasn't intentional, but, you know, who am I? Judge isn't on the bench anymore. Normally, it's not that complicated and you don't feel like you're being sabotaged by the trial court judge, but these things can happen. So I want to just move right into briefs. And I think we've kind of been pretty clear about read the rules, read the rules. What's your number one piece of advice, Liz? Because you write appeals. If you had one piece of advice for brief writers, what would it be? When you write a brief, keep it brief. Why? You only get so many pages. I believe there is a page limit. In fact, I know there is a page oh, limit. Quite certain. <laughs> quite certain. And so there's a lot of information you got to cram in there. So every word counts. You have to make every word, every sentence, every paragraph count. If you have a long brief and it's going a whole lot of nowhere, you're going to lose your audience. And you have to think, who is my audience in this situation? It's the clerks and the judges. And these people are good, strong writers. They know what good writing is. And so that's what they want to see. They want to see you advocating for your client through your writing. So keep it straightforward. Keep it honest. Don't embellish. Don't go on too long. Just keep it brief. It's literally written into the Missouri Supreme Court rules that they prefer you to have three to four cases that you rely on throughout this brief instead of citing, you know, every case that's in Missouri law that briefly touches on this issue. They want you to have a few points of strong authority and rely on them and make your point with those cases in a concise and simple way. It's not like writing a normal motion where you're packing as much case citation in there as you can. I have also made a few notes, tips, if you will, about briefs, including be brief, as you say, Liz. Concentrate on the strongest points. You might have eight points of error in a case, and you might want to mention all eight, but please don't spend more than a couple of paragraphs on the ones that are kind of just throwaways. Please put your strongest points on appeal first. Follow those rules. Also, the court wants to know that you have actually preserved the record for appeal. So part of your points relied on should include proof that it's this point has been preserved. Also, the standard of review You have to inform the court, what's the standard here? Now, of course, they know it, but you have to brief it. Is it de novo? Is it abuse of discretion? The Court of Appeals, I mean, your brief should be very clear about what their standard of review is. Obviously, you want proper citation, proper grammar, all those things. And I think 
You must have other people read your brief, Liz, as you say. You're working hard on it. It's very important. You're spending a lot of hours. Your eyes are probably going cross trying to read all this stuff. Give it up for a minute. Give it to somebody else. So I think you have to really share the burden with a colleague or a spouse or anybody that you have that can take a look at it and say, this makes no sense to me. Or why are you spending eight pages on the same thing? My little habit that kind of goes back to my keep it brief rule is that whenever I write something, and I do a lot of writing, I try to give it at least 12 hours of break. And then when I go back and I sit down and I start editing my own work, I have a personal rule of, I bet I can cut out at least 10 words in every paragraph. And typically it's even more, but I bet it's at least 10 in every single paragraph I can start cutting out. And that helps me, again, be as straightforward, to the point, and respectful of the court's time, and also respectful, I think, of my client. When I think about brief writing, I'm not here to show what a phenomenal writer I am and how great my vocabulary is and all of this, that, and the other. I'm here to make an argument. I'm arguing to other lawyers. They don't need to hear all that really you know, fancy language or anything. They just want to get to the point. And on that point, I think this is a good time to wrap it up on this part of our two-part episode on appeals. In our next episode, we'll concentrate on oral argument and post-disposition motion. So thank you again for joining us for another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Stay tuned for brand new episodes every Wednesday. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury Is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today.